Hi everyone, I'm Shane Leaning. Welcome to Travel Ed, a podcast about education across countries and cultures. I work in teaching and leadership development, and in this show, I get to know the teachers, leaders, and innovators making a difference across the world. My guest today is Julian Fisher. Julian is based in Beijing and the co-founder of Venture Education, a market intelligence consultancy focusing on education in China. Julian's also the vice chair of the British Chamber of Commerce in China and drives many of their initiatives on education. He is one of the most knowledgeable people I know on schools in China, and in this episode, we explore the landscape of education across the country. Let's jump right in. I was speaking to a friend back in the UK、um, last week, and I asked them what words would they use to describe the education system in China, and they said. Didactic, lots of testing, and really great maths. Were they right? In many ways, yes. There is a lot of testing in China. I had a student here once who、um, told me that he was really good at English, and I asked him how he knew that, and he said it's because he did a test every week for fifty words, and he always came top. He got the most amount of words right. And I asked him, "Do you remember any of those words?" And he said, "No," which I think is kind of representative in some ways of some of the challenges here. I do think they're, they're sort of struggling a little to get rid of testing out of the system. Are they good at maths? For sure, we have a lot of students here who take A level maths when they're in their GCSE years, and the system is very cohesive because it deals with tens of thousands or tens of millions of students、uh, every single year, and, and that, that's one thing I think that's definitely very different. But that all being said, we, we once had a project in thirty government schools here,、um, working with、uh, entrepreneurship education, and those thirty schools just in Beijing were so diverse. You know, you had some schools that had real behaviour issues with students. You had some where the teaching style was a lot more open, a lot more group work, really different styles of management among the school leadership. So I think you know we shouldn't think of China as a monolith. I think that's definitely something that happens overseas a lot. I think one thing that I would add here, you know, is is that notion of Chinese education. We use the word education globally, and I think we imagine it means the same thing in every language. In reality, in China, that word means something I think very different to what it might mean in the UK, where I'm from. You know, it's about social mobility, sure, but I think there's also elements of control, of conformity,、um, of making sure that every Chinese national student has gone through the same version of history and politics and geography. You, you know, essentially unifying what historically has been quite a disparate group of people all over the country. You see, the China education system here is a unifying force, and it's not always. A problem. I mean, a lot of people here talk about the Gaokao, which is their high school, you know, exam to get into universities as being a really bad thing because they've got to learn huge amounts of information. It's essentially rote learning and just memorization. But right back to the Song Dynasty, the way that you've had social mobility and fairness is that anyone can take the imperial examination. A farmer can become a civil servant. So this idea is really deeply ingrained here that it's okay if everyone is doing the same thing, then it's fair. The problem is if you start having, you know, coursework or things being graded differently in different schools or different districts. I think that would cause uproar in a way that is more about the system being fair than it is about it being differentiated. So, in a way, there's a reason why China wouldn't want to move into these kind of education techniques that are being used around the world. Yeah, and ultimately, I think it would be impossible. I think if you introduce coursework. In the Chinese education system, you would definitely see a lot of heads of department driving Range Rovers within a couple of weeks, and and that's really sad to say. But I think Chinese parents will do anything for their kids to succeed, and you would see the system corrupted. I think quite quickly. Absolutely. So 
I'm in the private education se sector in, in China, and that's kind of what you, you work within as well. Now, I know there's a big mix of private and public ed education in China, which many people might not quite realize operates a little bit differently to other countries. So could you speak to this? What does that mean in China? What is this mix? So arguably the best schools in China are government schools. So if you, you know, they, I think this Monday or Tuesday, um, they released Ivy League applications and, and the schools in China, which had the most acceptances, the number one school in China was the experimental school attached to Beijing Normal University. That is a government school. Right. Um, and I think that's, that's often misunderstood. You know, the dream of every Chinese family, I would say, is for their child to attend a good school and go to Tsinghua or Peking University. It's not this idea that they all dream of Cambridge or Harvard. You know, I think that's definitely a misconception. You know, the dream here is to stay in the Chinese system, public system, public university. Um, and I think what also confuses it here is that private school has a really broad meaning. You know, in the UK, we have, what, 7% private schools? And they're very expensive, you know, elitist um, class system going to top universities. Here, you have some that are internationally oriented, some that are for ambitious students, some that are for struggling students, special education, migrant workers, schools attached to hospitals, schools attached to factories. You know, so the range of private schools is very different. And most of them are for working class families and are very, very low cost. We're talking, you know, a couple of hundred dollars a year. Um, and I think maybe some of the big distinctions that are coming up here now are for profit and not for profit. And up until 2021, this was a hugely unregulated space. You had a lot of property companies building huge apartment buildings and then putting a school in the middle. And this was all intertwined. Um, and then in 2021, there was something called the private education law, which attempts to completely clarify what is a private school? What relationships can it have with a public school? Stopping headmasters in public schools from profiteering, uh, making sure that they weren't generating other forms of income. You know, most of it was about money. And that really sent, you know, shockwaves through the system because up until that point, really anyone could open a school and kind of do whatever they liked. But at that point, it was very clear what they could teach, what they couldn't teach, how they could make money, where they couldn't make money. Um, and I think that tension is being somewhat resolved, but is still a little more acute here in the sense that, you know, you do have schools here that are for profit. Um, you know, most private schools in the UK, I think, fundamentally are still charities. Gosh, I mean, that's a difference between between private schools in the UK, which are seen as those elite, and ones in China, which have mm -hmm. such a variety of purposes. And interesting that there's private schools that actually are aimed at the working classes here. Yeah, and I, and I think it's, it's a little sad maybe sometimes here that a lot of those schools are really for people who don't have other choices. Um, there's definitely a lot of anxiety here among parents because the system is really really it doesn't you've got 50 kids in the class even in the best private schools and though the students who are keeping up can keep up those who fall behind there's no differentiation of activities ultimately they're not supported through you know tutor groups or all these kind of things and so if you're you have a kid and they're falling behind you know you're often kind of forced to send your kid to a private school because maybe they've dropped out of the the government system or they can't keep up um, and I think there's a role here for international schools to play because I think often their pastoral care, their support, their special educational needs, all of these things are really, really world-class. And I think that's why a lot of middle-class families increasingly kind of lean towards, you know, making that choice. So where do international schools fit here in China? 
Um, okay, it's really difficult because I guess we're speaking to a global audience. So I'm, I'm going to break it down, but I'll keep it as simple as possible because there's definitely a lot of confusion. So you, you have four types of school license in China, fundamentally. You've got government school. Um, I think that's self-explanatory. You've got a private school. Both of those are for Chinese nationals. That Those are the only distinctions. Now, what happened is this type of school called a bilingual school kind of got created by the market. But fundamentally, it's still just a private school. It has to follow those rules. And um, students between the age of six to 15 have to go through compulsory years of education in terms of curriculum and classes that they're undertaking. So government schools, private schools, you have foreign passport holder schools. These are, I guess, in some sense, the true international schools. They are for the, the children of foreign workers and journalists um, and, and, you know, anyone else here who's a foreign passport holder or returning Chinese. A lot of, you know, students returning from or families returning from Canada or, or elsewhere. Um, and then you have embassy schools, which is a very small category, um, only in Beijing, you know, the Pakistani embassy school, the German embassy school. So that's the broad scope. And you'll see two of those groups are for Chinese nationals and two of those groups are foreign passport holders. Um, again, those lines were being blurred a lot up until 2021, but I think they're now a lot clearer. The government has kind of sought to really clarify which each schools um, are. I think something though that gets raised a lot here that's really interesting is, is you know, I, I question the word education right at the beginning. I think here international education is a really interesting concept. Um, I think that historically we've sort of felt maybe that, you know, an international school was where Western expats lived in the Middle East or, or elsewhere. Um, you know, what does it mean here? Does it mean learning a foreign language? Does it mean Western examinations? Does it mean that you intend to study overseas? Um, I visited a school in Shanghai before that sends 60 kids a year to G5 universities. That's Oxford, Cambridge, LSE, Imperial and UCL. It's something very common in China, this definition. The entire school, private, Chinese-owned, Chinese management, entirely Chinese teachers, entirely um, Chinese student body. You know, now, are they an international school? You know, what's the criteria for how we're judging international? I think something that's going to be really interesting in the future is China has opened its first international school in Dubai. And clearly the intention here is that they want to open more Chinese schools along the Belt and Road. You know, this network of countries, particularly in the global south. And so I think like so many things here... China is really going to start to challenge what previously maybe was a fixed conception in people's minds. And maybe in 10 or 20 years, when we're talking about international schools, you know, we'll be grouping British schools, Chinese schools all together in third countries. That's so interesting. You know, I was reading some research recently, which was about the different typologies of international schools. And essentially, the kind of old way of thinking is that there's three types, right, around the world. There's, you know, Taipei, which is international schools set up for international families. So I think what we're seeing in China is a shrinking of that of that area, right? There's still those schools that exist, but now they're catering a lot to kind of a more host national demographic, even if they've got a passport from overseas. Type B is like a, an international school set up for a purpose of promoting internationalism, which I don't think there's many in China. United World mm -hmm. College have got one in Changsha, right? So maybe they're a good example. And then type C is those international schools that actually are promoted at the host national elites, mm. usually. And I guess that's where we're really seeing an explosion in China. But also you're, you're hinting at something different. Yeah. And I think, again, it, it challenges that notion of what we mean by international. And I think, you, you know, you have international departments here in public schools. So the, the kids will go through the Chinese system all the way until high school. 
and then they'll choose a pathway. And it might be that they take the Gaokao and go into a Chinese university, or it might be that they take IB, or most often they take A-levels, because there's a tendency in a lot of these schools to only do maths, further maths, economics, physics. Um, and, 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 you know, and, and those schools are grade factories. You know, every kid is coming out of there with three or four A's. Um, so, yeah, and, and, and it's really about destination there, as opposed to the nationality of your teacher. I mean, the curriculum, sure, but that's only really a means to an end. So it's, it's definitely, I think, challenging the notion of, of what it means to be an international school. So international schools in China don't necessarily mean an international staff body. And I think that's changing uh, a lot here. I think you're seeing that there are significant shifts in the demographic of who's working in international schools. I know you work a lot with schools who are grappling with these changes in China and, um, and dealing with that, especially regarding staffing. And the schools that I work with as well are also grappling with how to get this balance right between, is it important that we have a school full of international teachers mm-hmm. or do we actually lean into the local market of teachers to get the school right? And, as, and I guess speaking to what we were just saying, it's, it's really difficult to know what the answer is because we're talking about the end point of being important. And if you're saying there's schools that are attached to um, universities, for example, with just a small department who are still getting the same outcomes, arguably an international school full of international staff is not necessarily mm. important here. So I think, especially in China and, and largely because of COVID, the old model is dead. I think it was somewhat neo-colonial, you know, the idea of kind of shipping in Brits and Americans and Australians to teach in schools in China, you know, and, and obviously among a lot of those teachers, there's some really incredible educators who are compassionate and caring and innovative and brilliant. But I think there also can be a slightly transactional nature to that engagement. You know, you do a two, three year contract and then you leave. And, and how do you build a school that's lasting and sustainable with a really strong culture when your entire staff is kind of circulating every two to three years? And, and also, if I'm honest, I think perhaps one of the problems was that, you know, you had a lot of teachers who were kind of teaching a global mindset, but maybe they didn't embody it fully themselves. You know, and I think that's always been a bit of a problem with international schools. You know, from the first day you arrive in an international school in China, you're picked up from the airport by a Chinese assistant, you know, you've got a Chinese driver, they help you to get an apartment. And you can almost understand why a lot of teachers fall into a mindset of thinking they're here to kind of help China, they're here to to educate China. And I'm not really sure that's the right mindset to have, you know, it should be really about connecting with China rather than seeing some sort of hierarchy. Um, I have been speaking with a lot of heads recently in China um, about you know, their breakup, breakdown of, of different staff in the school. And I, I'd say nowadays it's drifting really more towards three different types of um, kind of staff. One is your classic international, you know, importing teachers from overseas, but again, not necessarily always from um, only English speaking countries, but also other countries that have, you know, strong academic traditions. I'm going to call that second group in between us. I know that has different connotations <laughs> in, 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 in education if you're from the UK, but you know, these are um, perhaps um, people from greater China, you know, Hong Kong or Taiwan who speak Chinese and maybe understand the culture. It might be even further afield, Singapore, but again, Chinese speaking, maybe Chinese heritage. Uh, it could be Chinese nationals who maybe lived overseas for 10 years or studied overseas and did a postgrad in, in, in education or something. Um, but I think it also goes the other way. It might be, you know, foreign nationals who maybe married somebody local 
or they studied Chinese at university and, you know, they're here 15 years, 20 years. And so they sort of, I think, maybe flip between both cultures and are maybe in some sense the most international of all. Um, and then the final group, obviously, is is local staff. And I think historically they were given in most foreign passport holder schools just purely administrative roles. But I think increasingly you're seeing a lot of them also looking at the opportunities around them, going overseas to study a PGCE or a teaching qualification or teaching certification in a foreign country and trying to come back and at a different level or a different status in the school. So I think the system is definitely changing um, quite dramatically. I have to say, ever since I've been here, I think it would make a good sitcom. I, I think I think an international school would be a really brilliant setting for a sitcom. Um, but I, I, I think all these things I'm saying, you know, you mentioned, I think, you know, what are the challenges with this? And I think one of them is how do you maintain a strong school culture in the face of so many different groups, different nationalities, different first languages, but also the transience of a lot of these staff. You know, it's not like the UK, and again, I'm using this just because it's my own country, where you might have staff who stay in the same school for 10, 20, 30 years. Um, so I definitely think you need to have a school with a strong board of governors, but also, you know, strong values, mission that lasts beyond any one leader or any one member of staff. I love your typologies for the different the different types of teachers. And I love the concept of the in-betweeners. And I think it's something that a lot of people will resonate with here. Certainly in the work I do, I'm exposed to this the concept of these in-betweeners and actually see a lot of schools that I work with and with my colleagues really pursuing these these mm -hmm. maybe you know as you say Chinese maybe have left and, and come back and trying to kind of shape a new generation of teachers here because that stability and that that staff turnover is is an issue right I think that they they can often struggle the most or or at least maybe have the most anxiety because I think they're perceived as lesser Yes. Than, the, than the international staff. They're often incredibly well qualified themselves, often more so than anyone else in the school. They sort of feel that they need to maybe separate themselves from the local staff because they're on a different pay level and kind of want to be perceived as kind of, you know, a different status among the parent community. So I think they're a new group, but I think they definitely have to fight in some ways the hardest to get where they are and to kind of really stand out and not feel that they're being treated as second class citizens. Because the hierarchy still exists yeah. in schools here. It's very much still apparent that there's a pressure for international staff to teach in these kinds of schools. Yeah. Is that something that you feel is always going to be here? I mean, in some sense, I think that COVID was actually good for this. You know, obviously in China, we, you know, it was, it was difficult here. It was three long, long years of COVID. Um, and teachers couldn't come into the country. So schools were having to hire from within. Now that meant often that schools were kind of, um, cannibalizing each other, you know, going after each other's staff. But I think in many cases, it gave opportunities to people from different backgrounds to actually show that they could do something themselves. You know, I think a lot of teaching assistants were being promoted. I think a lot of people were kind of new to the industry. You might have admin staff who were kind of converting into teaching roles or assistant teaching roles. So I think in that sense, it was really good because the parents didn't really have, and parents are a huge force here, they didn't really have any option. The option was, do you want your child to be educated? Yes or no. And if, if it's yes, then you're going to kind of have to make do with what we've got because no one knew is coming into the country. So and I think that changed a lot of minds because, like I said, in many cases, these staff are some of the most highly qualified, professional, hardworking that you're ever going to encounter. But I think previously they weren't necessarily given the opportunities. And in reality, right, there's not so many because of 
COVID because of the what's happened over the last three years. There's not actually that many international teachers here. Mm. So I guess a school's got a choice between we take international teachers maybe with less qualifications or less mm. experience than they would, or we go with the local market or these in-betweeners who are, who are highly qualified but maybe didn't fit the profile that we used to yeah. used to have. I do know a professor from Beijing Normal University. Uh, Normal University in China is a teaching university and Beijing is, is the best in the country. Um, she's working on kind of international education there and there's two really interesting things that she's doing. One is working on how to kind of qualify Chinese nationals as international school teachers. So obviously there's, there's something interesting moving there um, with the government kind of sensing that maybe there's a way that they can staff schools here with Chinese nationals. They don't need to bring in so many foreign teachers. But I think the second part of that is then exporting teachers. You know, you've got a huge population in China. You've got 20% youth unemployment from age 16 to 24. You know, there is no reason why international schools around the world aren't filled with Chinese nationals who can speak English. And I, th and I think you will see that trend happening. I think it will start with subjects where maybe internationally parents are, don't see it as so problematic, probably mathematics. You can imagine that if you were at an international school in Peru and your math teacher was Chinese, I don't think that would r really ruffle any feathers with anyone. But then you can quickly see how that might grow to physics and other subjects. And, you know, what? why not? Why, why does an international school teacher have to be American or British? Why can't they be Chinese as well? So I, I do think that might be a trend that we see because, you know, the one thing China doesn't suffer from is a lack of people. This is potentially quite exciting for international education and goes back to what international schools should be about, mm. really, which is this sharing our funds of knowledge across the world. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, there's COBIS, the, the Confederation of British International Schools. They do, did a survey a while back on teacher shortages. And I, I think uh, I, you'll have to go check it out. I think it's uh, freely available online, but it was 100 and 150, 200,000 teachers short by 2030, you know, looking at the growth of international schools. So that's going to have to be filled somewhere. And, you know, I think in, in countries like the UK, we have a challenge with that because we have a shortage of teachers in the UK. So the last thing we want to be doing is exporting teachers around the world. So I think you might see that there are going to be more and more Chinese nationals appearing in international schools. And yeah, as you say, I think it's a really positive thing because China is a really integral part of the world. Yeah, at the same time, it still seems that for British international schools, for example, they have a strong place in China. And even for that type of school that you described, the, the private schools, the bilingual schools, which for, for local students, trying to adopt a British style are still incredibly popular here. And I think some would say that many parents see them as still an elite style education. I mean, are they right? Is, is it better for a, a, a child to go to one of these bilingual schools in China? Are, are they better? I think at the moment, you know, the, the reality is if you're an incredibly high achieving Chinese student, you're probably going to stay in the state system and go to a really good Chinese university. If your parents maybe have a little bit more of an international mindset, maybe they studied overseas themselves or they worked overseas or their job requires them to travel internationally, they may look at one of the best internationally oriented schools in the country or maybe sending their child overseas. I think for the bulk of students, there is a huge amount of anxiety um, among school places in China. You, this is something you see with parents here is that they really, really struggle. You know, the economy has grown, you know, at times in the past 10% a year. Imagine the amount of change when the whole society is shifting that fast and education in many cases hasn't kept up. You know, a lot of schools might have nice facilities, but do they have teachers who have a kind of modern, innovative teaching style? So the truth is, 
you know, when I talk to parents here and, and there's a lot of concern about their kids' education, I tell them, like, you really just need to find a place that's going to support your child. And I think in many cases, that's the USP of bilingual or international schools. You know, the, the mindset of teachers is that every student matters. Maybe there's 20, 25 students in a class, a lot more ability to support students and kind of understand them as individuals. And I think for now, that's definitely an advantage that a lot of these schools have over local schools just because of the numbers. You know, if you're in a class with 50 or 60 students, you're all sat in rows, you know, the strong survive and the weak are pushed to the back of the classroom, literally, you know, asked to sit at the back where the you know, top students sit at the front. You know, you can understand that if you've got the money, because remember, private schools, you have to pay for here. If you've got the money, you can understand why you might want to take your, your kid out of that system and put them into a system that you felt was a little bit more supportive. So it's a stylistic choice that they're choosing these schools because of the, the system, not yeah. necessarily because they're quote unquote international in terms of the teacher. So it speaks even more to our point earlier about switching to that in-betweener. Yeah. And, and I think as well, you know, one thing to say here that they, they introduced a couple of years ago is that if you are in the lowest 50% of the middle school exam, you are forced, if you want to stay in the education system, to go the vocational education path. So again, you know, Chinese parents are nothing if not pragmatic. You know, if you look, if your kid is in the bottom 50% and you're being told, right, now your kid has to do vocational high school, and then you can't transition back into academic university, you have to go to a vocational university or vocational college. If that's not what you want for your kid, and in many cases it's not because they've spent the last 30 years kind of getting out of blue collar work, and the idea that their kid is going to kind of go back in that direction for so many parents here is a complete nightmare, whereas I think it's not in Denmark or Germany or Australia. Um, so, you know, you're seeing that that's also a choice that, that you know, if, I, if I've got the choice between sending my kid to a private school, maybe, maybe a bilingual school, maybe just another private school or keeping them in the government system, but then they have to take the vocational path. And for a lot of families, the choice is pretty clear. Do these paths not destined children to go abroad to study afterwards? Yeah, they do. Absolutely. I guess if you if you if you've been forced into the vocational path, then you're not going to be able to take the Gaokao. So you've been forced away from the academic path. But yeah, I think it is a really bold decision. And in many cases, you know, I'm sure you've seen the same thing here. You have parents who know nothing about the education system where they're sending their child. And we're not just talking about the UK or the US. You've got families sending their kids to universities in Germany or France or South Korea with as much knowledge about those systems as you or I have. I don't know anything really about the South Korean system, how it works, how universities work. Um, so it, it's almost like they're just looking for opportunities, you know? And, and, and I think in that sense, I think that's maybe kind of historically, Chinese families have always been quite brave. You know, there's a reason that there's a Chinese restaurant in every village in the UK, because at some point in history, a Chinese family made the incredibly brave decision to go overseas and start a business without knowing the local language or local culture. And I think it's the same with education. And, and in that sense, I think it's quite admirable. You know, I, I, I think, yeah. in, you know, generally, you know, most kids in the UK system are relatively conservative and, and want to stay in the country. Whereas I think here, the whole world is open. You've got Chinese students studying in Hungary, studying in Israel, studying in, you know, South America. That's really, really bold. And I think in the end, it's, it means China in many ways is more internationally oriented and is looking more internationally than a country like the UK because it sees that they can learn from anywhere in the world. 
Isn't there an argument? I've heard that actually the dropout rates of Chinese students when abroad and university can be quite high compared Mm. to some other countries. And maybe that's to do with not being prepared to go internationally. And I know a principal actually who I spoke to in a bilingual school a while ago, they, they felt like one of their main purpose actually was to prepare these students for an international life. So in fact, actually to prepare them not to drop out of university and to succeed abroad. Um, maybe it's something that these bilingual schools that are operated in an international way can help with. Yeah. And I think something you highlight there is we've talked quite broadly about the Chinese education system. There are obviously a lot of challenges here, you know, and when I talked about that youth employment rate, employability is a major kind of extension of what you were just saying that the education system here does almost nothing to prepare you for life. You know, and the idea is that you are really, um, you know, you you go to school to pass the high school exam to get into university and you go to university to complete the essays and do the work. And during that whole time, you've never had a part time job. You've never done any work experience. And I think increasingly China is seeing what that does. It creates a whole generation of kids who then pop out. They followed the rules. They've done what was asked of them. You know, they've done all the homework. They've got the grades and then they hit real life and real life doesn't, you know, the next step is not just applying for a job and getting it. It's competitive. You know, you know, I, I, my company here, we've hired a lot of graduates over the year, probably over 100 grad, Chinese graduates from, from overseas universities. And it, they really, really struggle because they, they've never had a job interview. Um, you know, they've never had any work experience. And, and I think that there are definitely challenges that are faced here in the system. And, and I think what you said is right. I think a lot of bilingual schools here, you know, their role is to try to broaden their students' minds and try to kind of get them prepared for the world. But unfortunately, still in a lot of parents' minds, all that stuff is a bit wishy-washy, you know, and they don't really want to believe it. You know, you tell them, look, it's really important that your kids are prepared for the real world, that they can make ideas happen, that they can communicate, all these things that we know are important, but they're not tangible. But what is tangible is an A or a B. Um, what is tangible is the name of the university that you got into. So, yeah, I think there is definitely a real challenge here that has not yet been solved. And that is, what is the education system doing here in terms of preparing kids for life? And is it a little bit like that testing system that I mentioned at the beginning where, you know, it's a series of hoops to jump through, but in the end you pop out and maybe you're not actually prepared for for, for, for life? I mean, what's clear is things are developing fast. Yeah. yeah. And actually, it seems that the government in China are, are really reacting and responding to this, this kind of growth of this type of school and, and, and adapting to needs. So we talk about, you know, all these students going abroad and we talk about actually the world learning from China in terms of some of the kind of education practices happening here. What would you say, in your opinion, are the things that the international educators around the world can learn from the system here? Okay, I I guess I'd probably approach this from two sides. I I think, first of all, it's just interesting to be here and to speak to people who work in education, especially in the government system. You know, there's a real respect for education, huge amounts of parent engagement. You know, they've had to structure a system that can work for, I think, about 260,000 schools in China. You know, really competitive. But I think maybe one side of Chinese education that's really not appreciated is their willingness to learn. You know, China is constantly sending people overseas to try to understand more from different systems. And I think, again, that might be an area where there's a degree of complacency. You know, I don't know how often British educators come to China and say, we're really interested to learn what you're doing. I mean, there was a little thing about maths a while back, but beyond that, you know, so I think there is a real 
willingness to learn from other systems and to integrate things. And it happens slowly as education does. But like you said, you know, I, I grumbled a bit earlier about employability here. They will see that problem. They will go around the world. They will look at best practice and they will slowly start to absorb some of those into their own system. And I think that's a really impressive thing for a system that's so big. Um, and, and as I said, you know, soon China will be exporting education. It will be exporting K-12 education around the world and they will grow very fast and they will learn very, very fast. Um, but I think in terms of what we can learn, you know, my belief is that any international educator should come and work in China at some point in their career. And I say that because China is the future, that, 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 may be a little scary to some people, but, you know, the question really, is this going to be the Chinese century or is this going to be the Chinese millennium? Because China is continuing to grow rapidly in terms of influence and wealth and power. Um, and we're so used to a kind of unipolar world order. You know, we've, we've lived in this world that's been relatively stable. America's been the most powerful country, I think, for most of our lives. And I think China is challenging that. China doesn't want to catch up. It wants to lead. Um, and, and, even just take, for example, a higher education, you know, traditionally the destinations where students have studied have been places like the UK or the US. Um, there were 450,000 foreign students in China in 2019. And most people don't know that because, again, most of those students weren't from Western countries. They were from countries on the Belt and Road like Pakistan or Nigeria or uh, Kenya. And I think that's really, really interesting because they're going to have an influence on the education system. And, you know, I think understanding China is kind of understanding the future. So, you know, we talked a little bit about international educators kind of being globally minded. I think coming to China and, and challenging a lot of your assumptions is probably an essential part of any international educator's journey. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, and definitely my, my one piece of advice for anyone who does choose to take that leap and come and live in a country that's really historic and really diverse and has amazing food and all those things um, is definitely not to come here with the mindset of like, how can I educate China? You know, I'm the expert and I'm going to tell them how education works and what to do. I think it definitely is more, how can I connect with China? How can I connect with young people and with adults and with the country and with the culture? And I think that is probably, you know, the best way to approach any international education. And I guess if we're going to accept China as a new world leader, education is probably a pretty poignant and beautiful place to start. Yeah. And, and, and ultimately, it's relatively apolitical. I mean, of course, nowadays in the world, everything seems to be quite political. But I think it's an area where China has always encouraged students to study overseas. You know, it's always encouraged kind of people to people connection and student exchanges, you know, in recent policy updates, there's been a huge amount of encouragement for Chinese schools and universities to do student exchanges both ways. And again, that's the way it should be. It shouldn't just be that Chinese students are going overseas. It should be that there's a kind of reciprocity here. And, and I know that there's a lot of concern among Western governments about the rise of China. But I think a lot of what now is being understood in these countries is that China knows so much more about us than we do about them, because they have not been shy about studying overseas, learning from overseas, trying to understand the rest of the world. Whereas I think the rest of the world has kept China at arm's length and kind of had a, a slight arrogance and an idea that there's not really much to learn from them. And I think that's very misguided and it needs to change. I think we had about 400 
graduates uh, last year in British universities um, who were Chinese language graduates, 400. You know, you've, you've got millions of students in China learning English every single day as we speak as part of their national education system. You know, there is a real imbalance there in terms of how much we're learning about each other's cultures. Julian, this has been really enlightening and I feel we're going to have to catch up soon because probably things will change next year, the year after next year, we'll probably have a lot more to to discuss on where China's place is in the world in education. Yeah, let's talk again in two years and I'm sure everything I've said will be wrong by then. Thanks, Julian. My biggest takeaway from Julian is that China is here and whatever your thoughts, we can't ignore it. In education, we need to engage and learn from the work that is being done there. The West has been pretty complacent with schooling, and China is anything but. If you're an international teacher or leader, you'd be wise to spend a few of your years in China, as things are changing fast. Travel Ed is hosted and produced by me, Shane Leaning. Original music by Guillermo Silva. If you like the show, please like, subscribe, and help spread the word by giving a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Links to Venture Education and Julian's work can be found in the show notes. You can also follow along and join the conversation on social media using the links in the same place. See you next time.